Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome back once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. Trade Bites is the podcast series that answers the questions that you didn't even know you needed to know about UK trade policy. And today we're putting the focus on the thing that nobody pays attention to until it doesn't work anymore. I refer, of course, not to the plumbing system in my house, but to global supply chains. It's a fact of modern life that many of the goods that we consume have multiple components, many of which have been manufactured in different places at different times, but which somehow come together to create the finished article. But it's also becoming evident that global supply chains are coming under pressure. In part, we can blame the dislocations caused by the pandemic, but there are also more deep-seated issues at stake. Of course, it's obviously going to be a problem securing goods from a war zone. Just ask anyone trying to import sunflower oil from Ukraine at the moment. But there are also political, technical and ethical dimensions to the supply chain and the way it functions. So how could life be made easier for manufacturers of complex goods with complex supply chains? Have we actually gone too far as a society with our demands for detailed supply chain auditing? And will we ever get back to those days when we didn't hear the phrase, we can't get the parts, quite so often as we seem to do these days? Well, it's time for me to introduce three guests who can bring their own rich expertise in this subject and who offer a wide range of different perspectives. I'm joined by Dr. Sam Roscoe, Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex Business School. It's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Chul Chong, Senior Research Fellow at the Korea Institute for International Economic Policy. And I'm joined too by a man who is no stranger to the world of trade policy podcasts, Dr. Chad Bound, Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in the US. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for joining us. Sam, can I start with you? Why is supply chain resilience such a hot topic for discussion right now? We are, what are the global factors which are sort of driving the debate? Well, I mean, I think why supply chains stay in the headlines for such a long time is because of shortages. I think when customers, consumers go into their shops and they can't get the products that they want, then there is you know, the need for explanation. Why isn't my stuff here when I need it? And I think that's been really the case for two years, certainly, but even longer, probably three or four years, where we've been seeing rolling disruptions to global trade. And I think, in particular, the average person off of the street didn't really know what a supply chain was at the beginning of, of 2020. And then all of a sudden, in March 2020, when we went into lockdown here in the UK and then in the United States shortly afterwards... And people couldn't get long life milk or loo roll or or beans off of the uh, store shelves. They were all of a sudden like, oh, well, I didn't realize that this stuff comes from overseas. I didn't realize that a shutdown of a port in China affected the the availability of goods on store shelves. And then all of a sudden, you know, then we were in a supply chain crisis, according to the UK media anyway. And, And I would argue we've been in a supply chain crisis ever since then. And I think what we're trying to do now is is beginning to understand that 
you know, firms are able to manage one supply chain disruption. But when you get in a situation like we've been in over the past four or five years with multiple rolling supply chain disruptions, such as Brexit, the U.S.-China trade war, COVID-19, and now the war in Ukraine, then we're having to dramatically rethink the nature of global supply chains. Chad Baum, supply chain issues can take many forms. What are the sort of the main types of supply chain problem that businesses are tending to face these days? I agree with Chris that a big challenge and probably the biggest challenge is, is shortages of certain products. And if you're a business trying to make something, that, that usually means inputs. There may also be price pressures as well. My favorite example to explain this, just because it, it puts all of this together, is the story of semiconductors that everybody has heard at least part of the story, but maybe not you know all of it over the last two years. So semiconductors are you know these tiny microchips. They're hugely sophisticated and they're critical to almost everything. And electronics, everything in your house, cars, you name it, it's got semiconductors in it. And if there aren't enough semiconductors, which there haven't been, then we can't get these finished goods. So over the course of the pandemic, the semiconductor sector faced an inordinate number of shocks coming from all different angles that impacted their supply chain. So one of the biggest ones was just the huge reallocation of demand. So when the pandemic hit, especially in the United States, car companies that use a lot of semiconductors, they were very, very worried that Americans and consumers worldwide were no longer going to be buying cars. So they pulled all their orders from the semiconductor companies and said, we don't want to buy your semiconductors anymore. The semiconductor companies, this could have been awful for them. But at the same time, because of the new lockdown environment where everybody was schooling from home, working from home, you know, doing all of your leisure from home, that created huge new demand for semiconductors for lots of other sorts of sectors. So the electronics sector, you know, TV, computers, gaming systems, servers to be able to handle all of the new internet traffic that was happening. So the semiconductor companies did fine because they shifted demand. But then when the auto companies realized the crisis wasn't going to be as bad as they expected, and they went back to semiconductor manufacturers and said, hey, we need more chips, there was no capacity for them and they had to get to the back of the line. So you had that big demand side shock, but then you also had shocks like in the United States, we had a freak winter storm in the state of Texas, and that knocked a couple of semiconductor companies offline for a period of time where they couldn't make this stuff. And the ones that are exactly needing to make it for the car companies, you had a fire at a major semiconductor plant in Japan last year that knocked the plant offline. And then you have policy. Sam also mentioned the trade war between the United States and China. United States, we've had 25% tariffs on China since 2018 on semiconductors, the very thing that we're having shortages of. We've got export controls on, on semiconductors that have created hoarding in the market. In any case, you put all of these different shocks together, and it's no surprise that the market for semiconductors has just been in a state of flux over the last two years or so. But behind that, a big concern for supply chain resilience these days that is also coming to the fore is due to these geopolitical tensions. And for semiconductors, so much of the high-end stuff is actually made in countries like South Korea and in places like Taiwan, geopolitical hotspots, that there's really a big concern that we need more diversification just for kind of geopolitical reasons as well, even though those weren't the sources of any of the supply chain disruptions over the last two years. 
It's certainly a problematic situation. And Chad, you just mentioned Korea there. Chul, Korea recently signed an agreement with the United Kingdom to strengthen supply chain resilience, and other countries have done something similar. Can you just give us an idea of what that agreement basically consists of? What can governments actually do to make supply chains potentially more resilient? Yes, uh, UK and Korea in February this year actually signed an agreement to reinforce the, the pandemic damage supply lines for key products like the, the semiconductors. But I think I agree with what Chad mentioned about there are much more frequent external shocks, such as the pandemic and the war. They cause the unanticipated disruption. I think it's not just about the semiconductor. Uh, that is very, very a key part in the manufacturing. But also, for example, in the case of the wire harness, which is a very small part in car manufacturing, the early on of the pandemic, there was the supply uh, disruption from China about its uh, wire harness. And Korean auto companies like Hyundai had to shut down its auto plants for a, a few days because of this disruption coming from China. So it seems like global value chains have expanded too much. And as the other chat also mentioned about geopolitical tension, and security and technologies are very, very closely linked to the supply chain and complicating the operation across countries. So um, the UK and Korea wanted to make more stable supply chain between these two countries by signing this memorandum. And this, I guess, links to one of the more splendid words which trade geeks have invented over the past 12 months or so, friendshoring. was one thing trade experts are particularly good at is inventing new words. And this is one of the latest buzzwords. So the idea that you seek to source your supplies from reliable, like-minded partner countries. And obviously, the UK and Korea have a very good relationship. Sam, to what extent is this sort of happening more globally? And do you think it's likely to become more prevalent as time goes on? Yeah, I do think that. I think that's sort of part of a larger general trend. What we are definitely seeing at the moment as a reaction to these compounding geopolitical disruptions, like I mentioned, uh, Brexit, US-China trade war, COVID-19, the war in, in the Ukraine, what we're seeing at the moment is a shift in global supply chain design towards more regionalized supply chains. If you look at the semiconductor example, you have policy is also being implemented by the European Union in terms of the European CHIPS Act, which is putting a large amount of investment into semiconductor fabrication in the EU. We're also seeing similar types of investment in the United States with their CHIPS Act as well. That is really pushing the more sort of localization, regionalization of the semiconductor supply chain. What we're also seeing at the moment as, as a sort of a reaction to the US-China trade war is a movement of some manufacturing out of China, not back to the United States as President Trump had first hoped back in 2018, but we are seeing movement of production going to places like Mexico, serving the US market or Vietnam, manufacturing in Vietnam and then shipping back into China to avoid tariffs. So there has certainly been quite a lot of movement of manufacturing, especially in places like electronics, semiconductors, in high-end goods, there has been this move towards more regionalization of supply chains. And I think that is a direct reaction to these compounding events. Like I said, if it was one event in isolation, we probably would have just been carrying on as normal with global supply chains. But companies are really having to take action now.
And we've spoken about more sort of regional supply chains, but it's also the case that some people are calling for countries to become more self-sufficient so that they don't need to rely on so much on imports. I mean, that's what lies behind the European Chips Act, for example. Chad, do you think we could be on the verge of a sort of a new era of sort of industrial policy autonomy, whereby countries look to become more self-sufficient and less reliant on external trade? I think that's still a wait and see. On is it going to be more reshoring and folks trying to bring things back nationally versus this friend shoring phenomenon? Because at the same time, and I agree with Sam, you do see these policy initiatives both in the United States and in Europe on semiconductor manufacturing. But there, the interesting thing is both are worried about the same phenomenon, which is really concentrated production of semiconductors in East Asia. There's a lot of reasons why that happened over the last 25 years. Some of it's supply chains. Some of it's obviously the rise of China is becoming this just massive demand center for where final assembly of you know electronics was put together. And you would have so much of the components that were going into those, including semiconductors, ending up in, in various places of East Asia, whether it's South Korea, Taiwan, Japan. But at the end of the day, you know, there's not as much diversification as you might want, but both in the United States and Europe. And so the question is, with these really complicated supply chains, since we both sort of have the same objectives in mind, which is increased diversification, is there a way the U.S. and Europe can work together to achieve the same end? And so what they've been trying to do, and one of the kind of examples of this friendshoring initiative that they've undertaken is through this Trade and Technology Council, where they've recognized that they don't want to compete on subsidies to try to chase after the same companies and just drive up the price to the American taxpayer and the European taxpayer of getting a company like, you know, an Intel or a TSMC or somebody like that. So they've agreed to try to coordinate, I think, on their use of subsidies to try to get some of that additional diversification out of East Asia, but not end up at the end of the day with either excess capacity or them chasing after the same companies. Now, there is an international body which supposedly sets the rules for world trade, and that's the the World Trade Organization. I wonder what action the WTO has taken to improve supply chain resilience. You know, is there more that it could or should be doing? Chul, I wonder what your view is on that. The WTO actually holds these global supply uh, chains forum, and they are offering some uh, research and data using TIVA, the trade in uh, value added and global value change caters database and so on. But as we all know that the WTO is not functioning very well these days, and I would hope that the WTO might actually play a role in terms of the engaging in some of those export controls and import restrictions actually used by the other many countries. But at this point, I don't see much action taken by the WTO, and that's a concern. So. Here's an unpopular opinion. If successful companies are generally noted for their adaptability, so they encounter a problem, they find a way around it, they move on, they cope. To what extent do companies actually need governments to help them with shoring up their supply chains? To what extent is there a requirement for sort of intervention at governmental level? Or should companies not just sort it out between them? It's a great question. I think Left to their own devices, I would argue that, you know, semiconductor production would still be in Taiwan and in South Korea, mainly because of the costs that are involved in setting up um, fabs. I think for high technology industries such as semiconductors, 
you definitely need an element of government support in order to get the infrastructure, you know, the fabs, the production sites set up. Without that sort of driving policy behind it, you know, the market will just continue to look for the cheapest option for as long as possible. So I think policy definitely plays a role um, in encouraging these companies to begin to bring their production closer to European and U.S. markets. This is the key question. Where is the divergence between what's in the company's interests and what's in society's interests here? And I think this is the question that we're still struggling with. Maybe part of this is that in the world that we have sort of generated for ourselves with really low trade barriers, economic efficiency, having really lean supply chains, one of the outcomes of that is we've allowed companies to take advantage of that system in a positive way that's led them to become so incredibly efficient, but also incredibly concentrated geographically in certain areas. And there's good economic reasons why that might happen, why there might be all of this semiconductor manufacturing, you know, for an example, in East Asia, in Taiwan and in South Korea. And that's because there are these externalities, what economists call positive externalities of just getting all this activity located in one place. They learn from each other. They achieve economies of scale. They produce more. They lower their costs. All those are great economic efficiency arguments. But we now perhaps live in a new world that didn't take that into consideration 20 years ago. And that new world is complicated by these new types of shocks pandemic shocks that are can be really geographically concentrated. You know, you have to lock down a certain area to deal with a health situation or climate-related shocks, you know, storms of high magnitude, intermittent frequency, but geographically targeted. And of course, then these geopolitical shocks, right? And all of that suggests that while that might've been an efficient economic outcome that was great back then, in the new world that we confront with all these new types of shocks, Maybe we need a slightly different allocation of economic activity, at least geographically. The firms don't necessarily have all the incentive to want to do it, and governments are going to need to create some policy incentives to help them get there. That, But I agree. This is the key question that we have to figure out what the ultimate objective is, what the drivers behind it is, and then how to tackle it. And of course, there's another issue underlying part of this discussion, at least, and that is the ethical question, if you like. I mean, it is, for example, illegal to source inputs from the Uyghur region of China, certainly in the EU and the US, for reasons which we all know about. Obviously, Russia, you cannot import from Russia at the moment, for again, for obvious reasons. But of course, that puts a real requirement on businesses to know exactly where their stuff is coming from. To what extent is this policy push for requiring business to audit their supply chains to ensure compliance with either labor standards or human rights standards or environmental standards, to what extent is that complicating this whole issue? One of the reasons why the governments are involved in this supply chains, basically the expansion of supply chains were actually market-driven. Historically, we see that. But because of these geopolitical reasons and the security-related technologies and so on, and also the state capitalism uh, by China. So in order to respond to that, the U.S. and the Europe and the many other countries actually are very cautious about the supply chains. And the key issue in the supply chains these days is the stability and the trust in the supply chain. And uh, more increasingly, we see that the competition is not just among the companies, Rather, it's becoming the competition among the countries and the governments, such as the industrial policies and so on. So um, I think the companies are very, very cautious about establishing uh, plans in China, for example, 
you know, in the context of the supply chains, probably they will be a lot more cautious about this establishing new supply chains in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that policymakers and you know legislation plays an absolutely critical role here. I, I, I don't think it's complicating matters at all. In fact, I think it's absolutely necessary. I think the majority of issues that we have in supply chains, whether they're environmental or social, tend to come from the second, third, or even fourth tier raw material sourcing in the supply chain. So if you look at the introduction of the Dodd-Frank Act in the United States, you look at the Modern Slavery Act in the UK in 2015, it's actually this legislation that is forcing companies to actually go into their second, third tiers of their supply chains, find out who their suppliers are, because a lot of them don't know, and let's be honest, a lot of them don't know where their suppliers are or where their raw materials are coming from. And it's forcing companies to go out and you know get better visibility and transparency of who's working in their supply chains and the labor conditions that they're working under. And we're even seeing at the moment in the UK, you know, there's industry leaders such as Marks and Spencers. You have Patagonia as well, who are really doing excellent work in terms of supply chain transparency and finding, you know, and, and rooting out a lot of issues with their suppliers as a result of the Modern Slavery Act in the UK. So I think without that type of legislation, we would still be having a lot of problems with modern slavery, with environmental catastrophes in the second and third tier of the supply chain. So I would argue that it doesn't complicate things. It actually increases visibility and transparency. And arguably, with increased visibility and transparency, you have better resilience in your supply chain as well. And that's the point that I wanted to draw out as well that Sam just said. And I agree, this is going to be costly for companies to have to implement to get this increased knowledge about their tier two, tier three suppliers. But we need that information. And this lack of information is what's really, really challenging to policymakers today. They're trying to get insight into where these potential shortages might be coming up to try to get ahead of them, to try to develop policies to help tackle them. But when the companies don't even know who their tier two and tier three suppliers are, policymakers aren't going to be able to see it. They can't tease it out of the trade data Certainly, we can see in the United States that we import something from a South Korea or a Taiwan, but we can't see you know, who is selling those parts and components to the Taiwanese or South Korean companies and then who's behind them. And that's what you really need when there can. All it takes is you know, being one tiny bottleneck in a supply chain for the whole thing to unravel. So I agree with everything that's been said. This is a critical issue. It's going to be more expensive, but hopefully at the end of the day, this increased transparency and information will improve supply chain resilience. A naive question, perhaps. Have supply chains got too complicated for their own good? I mean, would we not be better off trying to source more stuff locally? I mean, is there an argument to say that it's just getting too complicated? I think supply chains are too complex, and I think that has certainly been, you know, one of the ramifications of globalization since the 1970s is, you know, moving things offshore, then you're getting suppliers who are offshore, and everything becomes more and more complex as your supply chain begins to spread out over the globe. I think there is definitely a recognition in industry right now that there has to be a simplification of the supply chain. And that's in terms of the number of suppliers, the number of supplier locations, as well as the number of stock keeping units or or product lines that companies are selling. So there's definitely a need for for simplification in the supply chain. Now, one of the interesting things, though, is is around, you know, localization and, you know, reshoring everything. 
The reality is, is you can't do that because raw materials can only come from certain parts of the world. So you can only localize so much of the supply chain. And we have to be realistic when we are talking about localization. There's only a handful of supply chains that are really localized, maybe bottled water. You know, there might be some food supply chains that are that are truly localized. But the majority of supply chains will have raw materials coming from one part of the world. Where you can simplify things is reducing your number of suppliers and making sure that you have visibility of where those suppliers are. So when there is a disruption, you're able to move production capacity and you're able to switch suppliers to avoid those disruptions. We do still need diversification because you know I, I live in the United States. Many, many of the shortages problems, the supply chain resilience problems that we've had have been on domestic supply chains. And again, I'll point back to that freak winter storm we had in Texas that knocked some semiconductor manufacturers offline. Our loo roll or toilet paper roll problem that we had early in the pandemic was a demand shock. It was everybody needed the toilet paper for their houses and no longer needed the types that were being manufactured for office buildings, commercial spaces. But all of our toilet paper is basically manufactured locally here in the United States. It wasn't a global supply chain problem. It was a it was a demand side shock. So I think that's critical. The other thing to maybe touch on that we haven't hit yet on the friend shoring aspect of this is your trusted partners need to be companies, countries that are going to live up to trading with you even when times get tough. And one of the things we've seen during the pandemic is everyone has been to blame of this. We've seen examples from everyone, including the United States and Europe, but that's basically export controls and the willingness to export products, even when supplies are tight and even when prices are starting to go up, whether it's currently fertilizers out there that we're seeing in, in world markets, China, Russia have export restrictions on these things. Trusted suppliers, even when times get tough and they need more locally, they don't shut down exports. And so hopefully the, the friend shoring is tapping into that as well. Who's going to be there uh, and be willing to continue to sell things to me, even when prices go up and they're going to want them for themselves? Yeah, I understand that there's more need for the, you know, the friend shoring or producing it more locally. But I'd like to give you one example of Korea and Japan. Actually, in July 2019, Japan restricted some three uh, chemicals in semiconductors production, like uh, photoresist, hydrogen uh, fluoride, and fluorine uh, polyimide. And those are very essential to making the semiconductors, you know, displays and so on. So actually, there was a big shock. And then the Korean government wanted to actually do it more locally. But it takes a lot of time and it needs to have the very high technology to provide those chemicals. So what actually happened was that some of those Japanese suppliers came to Korea, they invested in Korea to overcome this kind of restriction made by Japanese government. Actually, it was not the economical reason. It was because of the historical dispute between Korea and Japan about forced labor and so on. So there are some shocks there and then some responses by the governments. But it's a huge task to do that, especially when we are looking at so many, uh, you know, the elements that are going into the you know, manufacturing and production. I don't think it's possible to do that in everything, uh, you know, sourcing locally. As we start to wrap up our podcast, I'm just going to ask one more question, which I'd like to ask to all three of you in turn. We've sort of become used to having to wait longer for consumer goods to be delivered, and companies have had to get used to supply chain bottlenecks. Is this, to some extent, something that we're going to have to live with, or is it realistic to think that we can get back to something close to the pre-pandemic, 
pre-Ukraine war norm, what we used to have sort of three or four years ago. Chad, can I come to you first? What's your view? We're not going to go back. But I think at the same time that we have seen shortages and potentially delays of, of certain products, for essential products, that's really, really challenging. The big one that we've been facing over the last month here in the United States is infant formula. Again, this was a supply chain problem, though, that was purely domestic and of our own making, that we didn't actually have enough diversification and where we were sourcing baby formula from. One big plant shuts down. The entire U.S. market is is impacted by that. So for essential products, that's really, really worrying. For other things, though, the Retail landscape has changed such that consumers can just find something else. So if I go on you know, Amazon and I click here and it says, oh, there's going to be a three-week delay for this particular product that I want, there's so many choices. I can click on something else, spend my money, and it'll be that other thing will be here tomorrow. So I think it matters for essential products, but I think for other things, there's so many other alternatives out there in the world that consumers are oftentimes okay. That's an interesting perspective. Chul, what's your view on this? Yeah, I agree with Chad, and it's going to be very difficult to go back. I'd like to bring the, for example, the self-driving car. It's going to take a lot of the electricity, much more than we think. So uh, there's going to be a huge consumption demand for energy. But the problem is that we are moving into the carbon neutral society with climate change. So this high energy demand and the price volatility complicates things. And then when I talk to experts in the semiconductors industry, the technology is being stagnated. So we're going to be needing a a huge breakthrough in the semiconductors industry in order for us to go back to the pre-pandemic and the pre-Ukraine war. Sam, a last word from you. Yeah, I think we're not going to go back to, you know, globalized, long, complex supply chains, because I think the risk and the uncertainty inherent in that model has has now been proven to be broken. I think what we are going to be moving towards now is, you know, fundamentally different types of supply chain designs, primarily around, you know, the regionalization of supplies. So instead of having everything manufactured in China, you you have a, you know, a Southeast Asian uh, manufacturing center, you might have an Eastern European, a Latin American manufacturing center. Where the flexibility will come in is the ability of these companies to begin to move production volume in between those facilities, and which is really something that hasn't been built into the supply chain in the past. And that creates the flexibility of, of being able to manufacture something in one location and then switch it when there's a disruption. And I think we're beginning to see that in, you know, in, in the construction industry. If you look at companies like Caterpillar, JCB, as well as in the electronics sector, they're moving into this idea of you know, capacity volume swapping um, in between facilities. And I think that will create a lot of more flexibility. I think the second point just to make there is you know, we're, we're really seeing the need for transparency and visibility in the supply chain. And that is really being driven by emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence, your blockchain technology, as well as other types of you know, enterprise resource planning systems that give you better visibility of your supply chain. And I think companies are now really realizing, well, we have to invest in this technology. Otherwise, we just won't remain competitive anymore. This has been a absolutely fascinating conversation. There aren't many podcasts in which you can talk about beef and self-driving cars in the same half hour, but this has been one of those occasions. So I'd like to offer a big thank you to my guests today, to Sam Roscoe, to Chul Chung, and to Chad Bowne. 
Thank you very much for all of your insights, and thanks to all of you for listening in. So please do join us again soon for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.